0: Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. This is the same verse that we looked at on Good Friday, and we're going to dig into it again and continue to unpack what's here in this very dense verse of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hear this one verse. Looking to Jesus... The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for our church and all churches, Big C Church that gathers this morning around the globe to celebrate and to worship the risen and the reigning son. May there be a sweetness to our celebration and may there be power in what we hear and what we experience as we come face to face with the Savior who was dead and buried and now he's alive and he is here in this place and he looks deep within our hearts. Give us communion with him, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I just read the phrase, for the joy that was set before him. All we're going to do this morning is look at these six English words and unpack them together for the joy that was set before him. If you don't hear anything else this morning in this sermon, this is what I want you to hear. Today is the day of Jesus' joy. Today is the day that makes the Son of God happy. Today is the day that there is laughter in heaven. Today is the day of which Old Testament prophets they searched for, they asked about, they inquired of. Today is the day upon which... Angels themselves long to look. Heaven and earth was asking permission to experience just a piece of this day and share in Jesus' happiness. Today is the day that is the pinnacle of our salvation. It is a plan that was set in motion before the foundations of the world. Today is the day that the Trinity is reunited. God in three persons joined together. Today is the day that the enemy is routed. And we find that the sting of sin is not so stingy and the finality of death is not so final. Today is the day that Jesus' love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Today is the day of Jesus' glory. And Jesus struts around the maternity ward of salvation with the ear-to-ear grin of a first-time father. Today, Jesus is happy. He's irrepressibly, inexpressibly, unconditionally happy today on Easter Sunday. Forget everything else, but do not forget this. Today is the day of Jesus' joy. We say that, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves in this passage, because I think to understand these six words well, we need to ask ourselves two very important questions. Number one, we get that today is the day of Jesus' joy. What is that joy? What is Jesus so happy about? And secondly, in what way was this joy not already in Jesus' possession? Why does Hebrews say it was a joy that was set before him? It was out in front of him in some way. So I just want us to answer those two questions. First, what is Jesus' joy? What makes Jesus so happy today on Easter Sunday? Really, the end of verse 12 tells us when it says, Jesus is seated seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where Jesus is. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. Now in that little phrase, you pretty much have a summary of where the Bible has been heading from Genesis to Acts. It's been leading towards this great moment, and the story of the Bible from Genesis to Acts goes something like this. You and I have run from God. You and I have run away from God. It doesn't matter if we grew up inside the church or outside the church. All of us, every one of us, have run from God. If we grew up outside the church, that running, that sin, it may appear appear dramatic to other people. It may have been very noticeable to the people around us that we were running from God, that we wanted nothing to do with God. If we grew up inside the church, it might be more difficult to see because our body did churchy kind of things with each other, but our hearts from the very beginning resisted God and ran from God even if no one else in our church family knew about it. The Bible is unequivocal on this point. Every human being in this room was born running. We came out of the womb and we shot off like a racer in the opposite direction of God because our hearts naturally want nothing to do with them. It's not a coincidence then when we open up our passage and we find that Jesus' salvation, what he is planning to do, is likened like a race that is set before him because the Bible is saying that Jesus hit the ground running too. We were born running, but Jesus came into this earth running because he is chasing after us. Whether we are churched or unchurched, whether we have this visible rebellion or its internal and its apathy and its callousness against the Lord, if we have spiritual eyes to see in our flight away from God and we could look over our shoulder, we would notice that Jesus was born into this earth, running, chasing us in our rebellion. Both of us, both groups of people need a savior. When Jesus was born as a man, when he lived a perfect life, when he died the unjust death we talked about on Friday night, when he was buried, when he rose again from the dead, when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he addressed that penalty and rebellion in all of our hearts. The Bible makes a beautiful invitation. (laughs) It says, no matter who you are, churched or unchurched, running in visible ways or running in invisible ways, God makes this offer of salvation to every single one of us. If we will repent of our sins, that is, stop in our tracks away from God and turn towards him and agree with him that we have rebelled and sinned against him, God is offering to take that sin on himself to pay its penalty in full, and to give us the sweet and perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. When we do that, when we repent and we believe in him, Jesus catches us. He grabs us in his arms, he draws us close, and he offers us terms of peace, that we might have peace with God, That we might be a son and daughter of God. When that happens, Hebrews chapter 12 says, This is the joy of Jesus. This is the moment that makes Jesus happy. Jesus' joy is a redeemed church worshiping him. Jesus' joy, what makes Jesus happy, is a redeemed church that praises God the Father. Now the sign that we have, that we know that Jesus had finished this work, that he completed this work to bring us to God, is that when he had done this, when he had died on the cross, when he rose again from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, the Bible says that he sat down. We heard that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. We heard that again in our verse. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the picture of Jesus being done with our salvation. Now, All of us can imagine our dad getting home from a very, very long day at the office, right? He walks into the house, he walks into the den, he kicks off his shoes, he plops down in a recliner, someone hands him a cold one, he is done for the day, he's finished. And then he jumps up and plays with the kids and helps with dinner and puts them to bed, but you get the idea, he's seated because he is done. When Jesus ascends to heaven and sits at God's right hand, he is done. He is finished. There's nothing left to be done with respect to our salvation. Jesus, in that moment, he gains his joy of gathering a redeemed church who will now worship in his presence forever. You and I, Christian brother and sister, you and I are the joy of Jesus. Do you know that this morning? Do you sense that from the Son of God this morning? That you are the joy of Jesus. When he sits on the throne and he's finished with his work of salvation and and sinners who have now been made saints We now gather around him and worship him and praise him and know him and obey him and abide in him. That's the very thing that makes Jesus happy. This here, this morning, is the very joy of Jesus. Now, this Easter and for a couple of Easter's, um, our family tradition is trying to make Easter compete with Christmas. Now that's no small task, but we kind of believe that culturally, uh, Christmas holds the greater weight, but theologically, Easter holds the greater weight. Like if there was one holiday to celebrate for the Christian, it would be Easter, it would be the resurrection, it would be the sealing of our salvation. Both are important. You can't have Christmas without Easter, you can't have Easter without Christmas, but we want to shift the weight of celebration over to Easter. And so one of the best ways to do that with kids is to give them a present right? You give them gifts on Easter. You co-opt to Americanism and and give them something so they're happy, right? So that's what we're going to do. Maybe I shouldn't have shared that with your families, but we give a gift on Easter. And we were reminding our kids, hey, you know, this Easter, we do a scavenger hunt. You got to find your gift. We're going to do that on Sunday. It's going to be sweet. We've only done this a couple of times. And our six-year-old Gabriel, who is by far the most enthusiastic member of our family, he has never seen a glass that is not half full, When he was reminded that we were going to do that this Sunday, he spun around in his seat and looked at Julie and I and said, Mom, Dad, is this going to be something that I have always wanted? (laughs) And Julie and I were like, man, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) We're going to keep the receipt. I'm not sure. Um, Winning this salvation is the thing that Jesus always wanted. It's the thing he always wanted. It's the thing he started before the world was even created. It's the thing he thought about when he created your body and soul. It's the thing he thought about when his time came to incarnate among us and live as one of us. It's the thing he thought about before the cross. It's the thing he thought about now. This salvation, this gathering of a ragtag, very unimpressive group of people in this room and around the globe for all time, is the very thing that Jesus has always wanted. It's our salvation. It's abiding you and him together as one and enjoying communion with Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the joy of Jesus. This is what Jesus celebrates. Now we have a second question that we want to ask. If that's Jesus' joy and that's what makes Jesus happy, our second question, according to this verse, is in what way was this joy not already in Jesus' possession? Why does our verse say for the joy that was set before him? In other words, it's not something that he had, it was something that he was going to get. Why does it say that it was set before him? Well, the answer is kind of obvious because leading up to Good Friday, before he actually died on the cross on Easter Sunday, Jesus' joy of gathering us together, it wasn't fulfilled as it was going to be fulfilled. He hadn't died yet. He hadn't been buried yet. He hadn't been separated from his father yet. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. He hadn't ascended yet. He hadn't sat down yet. And so as the Hebrew uh, writer is saying all these things, he's saying Jesus' joy has not yet been secured in his possession as it will be because it hasn't been finished. And so his joy is in the background and the cross is in the foreground. Now, the reason the writer to the Hebrews tells us this is not to just get the timeline straight. It's not so that we can read this and say, okay, I think I got it. On Thursday, he didn't have his joy, but Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then he did have his joy. I I get how the timeline works. I don't think the writer to the Hebrews is making a chronological point. I think he wants to make a point of comparison. I think this is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. He is saying that Jesus' joy was weightier to him than his suffering. Jesus' joy was weightier than his suffering. Friday night, Good Friday, was a very dark evening. We gathered here in this space to slow down and to, with the writer to the Hebrews, obey the command, look to Jesus. And when we were looking at him, we weren't looking at Jesus as a baby in the manger. We weren't looking at those wonderful times of teaching he had with the crowds. We weren't looking at Jesus as a great and mighty healer. The writer to the Hebrews forced us to look where we don't often want to look. And that is at Jesus who endured the cross and despised its shame. The cross broke Jesus down, body and soul. It was an instrument of torture, a slow death for Jesus to endure. And it was also an instrument of humiliation for Jesus' soul to bear up under. The cross broke Jesus down, body and soul. But but the writer to the Hebrews gives us a little window into what is happening here. Because in Gethsemane, even as Jesus is praying, Father, if there's any way, would you take this cup of wrath from me? Even as he prays that prayer, Jesus thought of something more than the cross at hand. He wasn't just thinking about its pain. He wasn't just thinking about its shame. He wasn't just thinking about separation from his heavenly father. Our verse says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. For the joy that was set before him in the background, he was willing to endure and bear up under the cross in the foreground. That means, this verse means that the joy of bringing together a redeemed church to praise God was more important, more weighty to Jesus, was going to bring him more happiness than the cross itself could possibly take away from Jesus. Jesus took out a scale, so to speak, and he put two things on the scale. He, He put the torture, the pain, the humiliation, the shame of the cross on one side. And he put the opportunity to gather a church body washed and cleaned and forgiven on the other side. And in Jesus' estimation, the joy of a redeemed people far, far, far outweighed the cost the pain, the shame of what the cross cost him to do. In in some way we cannot fathom, as Jesus marched on that road to Golgotha in agony, his heart in some way had already seized upon something. This is worth it. What I'm doing is worth it. This is going to be awful. I'm going to be separated from my Father. I'm going to have the very people that I railed against in my preaching now feel that they have the final word against me in my humiliation. But all that notwithstanding, I've found something that is so sweet, so hopeful, so joyous, that it is worth what I am about to endure It was the joy that was set before Jesus, the happiness that was set before Jesus that allowed him to endure the cross that was set before him. Let me close with this thought. Jesus, in his life, he once told a parable about us in the kingdom. It's one of my favorite parables because it's very punchy, and it's actually only one verse long. It's a one-verse story parable that packs so much in it. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The story is familiar to us. It goes something like this. A man is looking to buy a field, and he goes out, and he's walking through the potential field. And while he's there, he, like, trips over this buried treasure. It's just kind of sitting there in this field, unclaimed. It's probably been there for a long, long time. And what he does next is absolutely a no-brainer. Does he buy the field or not buy the field? The parable says, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Now, I love picturing that conversation he had with his wife when he got home that day. Honey, I got some good news and some bad news. I found a field. It's in Gilbert. We can get it, but we're going to have to sell everything, right? The minivan, the wedding ring, everything is gone, and we got a field in Gilbert, but I promise you, I can't tell you about it, it is going to be worth it. I love imagining the wife's reaction. Maybe that just reflects my marriage. Um, but the meaning of the parable is obvious to us, Right? that Jesus and his kingdom are the buried treasure. And if we stumbled across that and knew a fraction of the joy and the satisfaction that was to be found in Jesus and his kingdom, we would gladly give up every possession that we have. We would be a fool not to pass up the opportunity to know and be known by Jesus. It's our joy to give up our former selves. Whatever the cost, whatever he asks of us, whatever we have to put down with respect to our identities or our reputation or our comfort or the things we hold dear, we would be fools not to put it all aside, to take up our cross, to seize that field and to know joy and joy inexpressible that's found in finding the kingdom. That's a delight for us to do and participate in. That parable is only true because the inverse of that parable is true. Jesus himself is like a man who walked in a field and tripped over buried treasure. That treasure was you and I. We were blind, we were lost. We were running from God and wanted nothing to do with him. And Jesus went home and he counted the cost. To buy this field, it's going to cost everything. I give up glory with the Father. I become a human being. I subject myself to humiliation and rebuke. I'm ostracized from my community, my own family, my mother and brothers. They're going to hate me. I'm going to endure the cross. I'm going to, for the first time since all eternity, be separated from the Father. To buy this field is going to cost so much. I will actually entertain the idea in the final moment in the Garden of Gethsemane to pass pass up the cost on this field, and yet there's treasure to be had here. There's a people who are lost, who I've created, who I can draw to myself and give them the joy of knowing me, and Jesus counts the cost of that field, and like the man in the parable, in his joy he went and sold all that he had, and bought that field. Today is the day of Jesus' joy. Today is the day that makes the Son of God happy. Today, on Easter Sunday morning, there is laughter in the heavenly places. Let's pray together. Jesus, our joy this morning is your joy. It's contagious and it fills us and it delights us and it returns our eyes to you. Because of your joy that was set before you, because you claimed us as a body, we now respond in joy. Father, let us celebrate today. Let us laugh today. Let us enjoy good food today. I pray the celebration doesn't end today. We fasted and lent for 40 days. Let us celebrate in Easter for 40 days, including friends and family in our joy because it was a gift to us to sell all that we have to seize this treasure and we have a life of joy in front of us. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.